0: The People's Constitution The Path to Empowerment of Australians in a 21st Century Democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 1, Part 3 Where Power Should Reside and Soon. In the context of the above rendition of power arrangements in Australia, and how abuses are now so unfortunately unrestrained by the Constitution, it is apparent that the founding document of our representative democracy is broken, although, as I will show, several parts of it are salvageable and in fact are essential to retain, including aspects of its features of representative government, federalism and judicial review. Generally, though, it is useless in its current form for what is likely to be a dearly held wish of Australians. I mean, it is quite useless if we genuinely wish to retain Australia as a democratic state. The Constitution is bereft of capacity to reign in corporate power, but that is only its second biggest weakness. The bigger problem with it is that it has no capacity to create the necessary participation in democracy that all Australians will need if they are to build a democracy worth the name and to navigate the future safely. That latter incapacity to enable... Inclusive participation of the kind necessary to ensure Australians can build the future they prefer, a future that will secure them and their well-being in terms they accept and plan for as a minimum. That is a more serious, or at least higher priority problem, than the incapacity to rein in corporate power. This is because Australians will not be able to shave off the excesses of corporate power anyway, unless they first establish a system empowering themselves. In two new ways. Given the excesses of corporate power, it is tempting to give priority to pursuing systems which might neuter corporate power as fully as possible, but it would probably be dangerous to assume that a power system could be or would be constituted to wipe out corporate power entirely. What is required instead, or rather simultaneously, is a new specification of the process by which power may be shared with and exercised by the people in an orderly manner. That process must function as both a negative force and a positive force in democracy. On the negative side, it must enable efficient vigilance by the people against surges of unreasonable power, wherever and whenever they may arise. On the positive side, It must enable the people to set the agenda for their future, to establish the specifics of their will. So it must be a double power. It must clip back the potential for excesses of power, corporate, political, legal, civil and theocratic, and at the same time positively enable specification of a new future, a new will of the people, that is sufficiently intelligent and intelligible to override the will to inordinate power whenever and wherever it may emerge. Australia's constitution is singularly inadequate for these purposes, which means it is singularly inadequate to the task of securing our future. It is also inadequate at an incredibly inconvenient moment, an unprecedented moment in history, when the world has about a decade left to prevent irreversible, catastrophic global heating. I have only touched thus far on a small number of the myriad problems afflicting Australia's democracy, or what's left of it, that stem directly from our broken constitution and the weakened, fragile democracy it has left us with. As the book unfolds, I will explore more. But it must be said at the outset that continued neglect of the mess at the centre of the statement that defines our birth as a federation will risk the complete loss of the nation as we have come to know it, or think we know it, in a post-World War II world. In large part, between 1945 and 2001, that Australian nation came to complacently proclaim, to assume, to take for granted, that it was free, Democratic, tolerant, welcoming, multicultural, fair, equal in its offers of opportunity, committed to some level of social security and dignity for anyone in need, committed to universal health care, generous in its international citizenship and responsibility, respectful of laws both domestically and in the international rules-based order, and possessed of golden soil and wealth for toil, or to put it less poetically, possessed of resources and prospects for continuing per capita prosperity that may be the envy of the world. But if this is how Australians might have thought of their country, if this is how we in the majority might have characterised our particular exceptionalism, none of those positive features of a possible Australian identity could be taken for granted after 2001, a year that one author has aptly described as the year everything changed. Once the threat of catastrophic international terrorism barged in on our sense of security on 11 September 2001, nothing was the same or could be the same again. Coming as it did, coincident with the threat that climate change poses to our security, and hot upon the heels of the threat, that neoliberalism had begun to pose to our chances of reducing economic and social inequality, that moment in 2001 crystallised a picture of the world that was even more unsafe than it must have seemed when atomic bombs were dropped on Japan in 1945 and the world settled fearfully into a Cold War that lasted more than 30 years. In that period... The world lived with the threat of extinction by nuclear war. Then in 1989, the Cold War ended and Western nations proclaimed that the end of history had been reached and that in the wash-up of the long ideological war between capitalism and communism, capitalism had triumphed as the soundest means of humankind's salvation. Capitalism as a religion had been vindicated and the faithful rejoiced. Indeed, they gloated, to the extent that American exceptionalism blew out to maniacal proportions into an extremism that suggested the United States was not only the greatest nation in the world, but the one entitled to rule the world using any and all means to contain any challenging power that might threaten that entitlement, a fully imperialist power entitled to invade, interfere with, or override the sovereignty of any other nation. By the 2020s, however, it was obvious that not only had the threat of annihilation by nuclear disaster reared back up again, other possibly more potent sources of extinction had reared up too, chief among them being climate change, pandemics and overconsumption, which has the potential to result in biodiversity collapse and attendant human extinction. So far from having achieved a benign end of history, a place where we could peacefully settle, comfortable at last in the assumption that capitalist liberal democracy is the most munificent political arrangement, it emerged that a far more atrocious end to history, one of our own making, had simply been brewing unrestrained and was now taking perceptible shape as an imminent perfect storm of existential threats. Humans will hope, of course, that there is still time for our species to avert this crisis. And there is resourcefulness in humans that could still, even in 2023, be organised to avert or attenuate the disaster. But no democracy, least of all Australia's, is yet well organised enough to unleash that resourcefulness to the extent necessary to head off the crisis in time. Once post-industrial planetary temperature increases, surge over the 1.5 degrees Celsius mark, a mark which on current patterns of consumption the world is likely to reach before 2030, if not by 2025, resource scarcity is likely to start a cascade of global conflict over what little there is left in natural resources to sustain life. And to the extent that this is likely to be a conflict some corporates will seek to profit from, it may be expected that they will consider it very much in their interests to stoke it. This may seem alarmist, but it is not at all unrealistic. Most Australians know and accept that climate change is the biggest threat to our future well-being and security. And most sense that, even if the threats are not as significant as they seem the last thing we should do is ignore them. The lucky country we may well be. But every time a new natural disaster piles up on top of the all too recent previous disasters, it is harder not to wonder if that luck has run out. And every time the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases yet another report on how close the world is to irreversible overheating, It is harder to deny a premonitory sense that the world is edging far too close for comfort to extinction. The challenge is unprecedented and we are unprepared. Noam Chomsky is not alone in giving expression to that sense when he intones, as he did in June 2022, that, We are at a unique moment in human history. Decisions that must be made right now will determine the course of future history if there is to be any human history, which is very much in doubt. There is a narrow window in which we must implement measures to avert cataclysmic destruction of the environment, measures that are quite feasible. It is shocking to hear words like if there is to be any human history which is very much in doubt, or that we are on a path to destroy organised human life on Earth, or that Earth's sixth mass extinction event is underway. Still more shocking is the prospect that this time the extinction may include us. But the prospect is no less real for being shocking and unprecedented. The full weight of science is behind it. To deny it, we would need to believe fully in miracles and fully against all evidence. We would have to deny rationality, not just in part, but completely. We would also have to deny a shared morality that obliges humans to care for one another and an instinct to do all things necessary to care for our children and the natural world that is the only thing that can sustain them we would have to be inhuman, like a corporation. Of course, since few Australians would admit of such inhumanity in their character, either as individuals or as a nation, there is a prospect that not only is there time to reverse the path to extinction, but there is the will to take that path, a will to live that is ingrained and irrepressible in human nature. This is a path that cannot be taken, however, if arrangements are not changed to give more power, much more power, to the people to determine what should be rightfully lawful and what should not, what should be created as a society and what should be created as a future for that society. That necessary quantum of power can only be attained by Australians if they have a voice in their own governance. But as our particular democracy is currently arranged, We have no such voice. We have a vote, for now, but a vote is not a voice, not by a long shot. It is certainly not a voice which articulates exactly what we want to build as a future in terms of well-being and security, let alone build as a core of acknowledged societal values which will bind us together strongly enough while we attempt to do something else that is unprecedented, namely, to transition to a place where two sovereignties – that of First Nations and the sovereignty that we currently call the Crown, can coexist, and productively enough to ensure the survival of both. This coexistence is central to the call for voice, treaty and truth in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. In fact, First Nations assert that the coexistence is there already because their sovereignty has never been ceded. This is undeniable. Even so, a coexistence of sovereignties between First Nations and the Crown, either as a verbal assertion or on paper, in law, is not of itself an enabling instrument of the sort of power that can be accurately characterised as self-determination, the form of sovereignty called for in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The call from Uluru is for, A better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. Unquote. As yet, the path has not been mapped out between wherever we are now and that destination of self-determination. Although the means by which First Nations compellingly suggest we travel there is by a macarata Commission and an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. But it is that sort of power and only that sort that can give us the measure of control we need over our lives If we are to lead them in the manner each one of us determines to be meaningful and fulfilling. To live a life like that, we first need to attain a minimum level of secure well-being. But that is only a beginning. To attain fulfillment, to make life itself worth living, or as Hobbes might put it, to permanently escape the state of nature in which the condition of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, there is another more fundamental need, one which has been deemed in international covenants to be obviously vital to life. It shows up as Article 1 in both the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights as follows, All peoples have the right of self-determination. By virtue of that right, They freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development, The fact that this is the first article in both covenants is testimony to just how fundamental self-determination is to existence in quantum and quality. In effect, human life is both meaningless and potentially non-existent without it. But that sort of power does not yet exist in law for anyone in Australia. It is a power that has been assumed to be essential by nations, including Australia, acting in cooperation at the UN since at least the 1960s. But in reality, it has been withheld from Australians by every government since. Australia has ratified both UN covenants, granting self-determination as a right, and has therefore agreed to make them part of our domestic law. But while laws have been passed in a few areas, such as freedom from discrimination on the basis of race, these laws have sometimes been enacted in such a way as to enable their rescission or suspension whenever a government may find them inconvenient. Just such a suspension occurred under the Racial Discrimination Act in 2007 to enable the Howard government to mount the Northern Territory intervention and send troops and public servants into remote First Nations communities without consultation, ostensibly in order to impose solutions for protection of children from domestic abuse. In short, to impose on Indigenous families a solution they would not dare impose on whites. Suffice to say, the Howard government trashed human rights legislation to no good end in this case. The intervention was mounted on the grounds of protecting Aboriginal families and children, although clearly the motivation was entirely political, with the Howard government wishing to appear responsible and caring via paternalistic intrusion. But in reality, the Northern Territory intervention was a new order of state-sanctioned cruelty. Tragically, it led to Aboriginal children being alienated from their families at unprecedented rates and their young languishing in detention in obscene numbers. In effect, it reinstituted another age of stolen generations. It speaks volumes that Australia has never ratified another UN Declaration of Human Rights in which self-determination is fundamental the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the UNDRIP. Under Article 3 of this declaration, it says, quote, Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. Unquote. Australian governments have claimed to support this But not only was Australia one of four countries to vote against the UNDRIP in 2007, while 144 countries voted for it, no federal government has since seen fit to affirm the rights listed in the declaration as something they are bound to observe in law, even though the government withdrew its objections to the UNDRIP in 2009. The Australian Capital Territory did amend its Human Rights Act 2004 in 2016 to make specific reference to rights under Articles 25 and 31 of the UNDRIP, but in the main, no law has been enacted by the Federal Parliament in Australia to implement the above international covenants, or the UNDRIP, either in full or with respect to their clauses on self-determination. As eminent constitutional lawyers have pointed out, This leaves Australia in breach of its obligations under international law. This, therefore, is the legal framework into which First Nations are now seeking to insert a voice. It is a neglected framework, singularly ill-suited for sustaining a form of sovereignty capable of giving First Nations enough power over their destiny to ensure their children will flourish. The reality is that unless that sovereignty comes with a lawful acknowledgement of self-determination as a right for everyone, and with a mechanism that allows everyone to exercise it in full, then so far from at last attaining a constitutional acknowledgement of their sovereignty, First Nations may risk embedding an impotent form of it, just as Australians did when they first assented to a constitutional monarchy. This does not mean that any Australian has an excuse to pull back from enshrining an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. On the contrary, a failure to enshrine the voice would be likely to lead to a situation that risks First Nations sovereignty in full. It is quite likely that First Nations will not keep their sovereignty unless they have a voice in the Constitution. But it does mean that all Australians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, should be aware of how far we still need to go to bestow on ourselves the sort of sovereignty that can only arise with self-determination. This is the potent sort of sovereignty we need, as opposed to the impotent sort. Further discussion on this issue and on ways to embed a viable coexistence of sovereignties in the Constitution is provided in chapters 5, 6 and 7 the Indigenous voice itself may provide some new institutional arrangements whereby Aborigines will have a say in laws which affect them and therefore a significantly greater measure of self-determination than they have now. But if models of a First Nations voice developed and published in 2021 in the final report of the Indigenous voice co-design process are anything to go by, this new voice may be all too easily sidestepped if it is not backed up, with a parallel recognition in the Constitution of fundamental human rights. As designed in that particular report, an Indigenous voice will oblige the Government and Parliament to seek the advice of an institutional, national Indigenous voice on issues which overwhelmingly relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But it will not oblige the Government or Parliament to heed that advice or even be transparent about its reasons for decisions. That particular model for an Indigenous national voice would therefore impose no genuine accountability on the Parliament or Executive Government, regardless of the degree to which the Parliament might reject the advice of the national Indigenous voice and thereby directly harm the legitimate interests of Indigenous and all other Australians.' There is no reciprocity in the arrangement. No respect is required on the government's part. While the voice co-design process managed to increase the government's obligations for transparency in the suggested model for the National Indigenous Voice, at least it increased transparency on any consultation conducted for bills to be considered by parliaments, the model nevertheless provided that, all elements of a bill or act of parliament would be non-justiciable. Meaning that there could not be a court challenge and no law could be invalidated based on whether there was alignment with the consultation standards or transparency mechanisms. Self determination, this is not a promise of genuine justice in lawmaking. It is not such a model for an indigenous voice, if implemented without parallel reconstruction of the constitution may therefore be likely to do little more than give Australia's indigenes a voice with one hand, but take it back with the other, especially if an untrustworthy government is installed. No doubt it will increase the influence of First Nations people, but only until political considerations get in the way again, just as they did when the Howard government thought it would be politically expedient to completely remove any powers for local Indigenous communities in remote areas and subject them to another militarised intrusion. So, if an inclusive Australia wishes to give an Indigenous voice the best chance of actually working, it will be necessary not just to enshrine a First Nations voice in the Constitution, but to revise the Constitution itself so that it can support a sufficiently powerful voice for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. This is the minimum necessary for a coexistence of viable sovereignties. Australia's First Nations are well ahead of the rest of Australians in knowing full well that this powerful voice, the type of voice that is more specific and influential than a vote, the voice that should be heeded, is the one that is essential if their children are to flourish. They have the vote, but still their children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates and languish in detention in obscene numbers. This is why they have sought to enshrine an Indigenous voice in the Constitution and why that call is utterly reasonable and sensible. They know better than other civilizations that it is a matter of life and death. They are ahead of non-Indigenes in their knowledge of the vital necessity of self-determination via a powerful voice. They are ahead of the rest in knowing that power should reside with we the people and soon, before we are all overwhelmed by a planetary fate we cannot control. All of this implies that Australia's constitution needs to be altered to vest power in all its peoples, indigenous and non-indigenous. However, it does not imply that all power should be vested exclusively in the people, or that their accession to power, particularly the power of self-determination, should disable the better features of representative democracy, where order should be maintained and abuses of power should be prevented through a system of separations of power. The safer and far more productive arrangement of democracy would be one where power itself is understood to be divisible, in the sense that there are different types of power that may be distributed among different partners to the democracy. A safer arrangement would be to assign the power to characterise the sovereign will to the people. They would assume the role of sovereign, currently assumed by the monarch in our constitution, but retain the advantages of the current system of representative democracy where the federal parliament and executive government, the judicature, the states and, if preferred, a governor-general or other nominal head of state, share other types of power in an arrangement similar to the current distribution but preferably with less room for abuse of those powers. In one sense, this would not be a significant departure from the role of the people in the current constitution – because they already have the last word on what it says, inasmuch as they are the only ones who can confirm amendments by referendum. But insofar as it will give the people of Australia their first opportunity to specify their sovereign will, it will be a paradigm shift in the structure of Australia's democracy. This is not to say that the shift will be disruptive of peace and order. Quite the contrary. Insofar as it offers the electors and the elected their first opportunity to specify their roles and responsibilities to each other more clearly than they can under the current constitution, it lays a foundation for sincere mutual respect. In pursuit of that better relationship between the people of Australia and those they elect, it is the project of this book to frame the essentials of a new constitution, the People's Constitution. These essentials are designed to enable Australians to add their voices to their votes and thereby establish the better arrangement of power that they so desperately need within their democracy. While this better arrangement of democracy is not intended to be an overthrow of either the current constitution or those institutions that currently exercise power exclusively under its terms, it is nevertheless a paradigmatic shift in the way Australians have been used to operating within their democracy, and in the way they are likely to assume democracy itself generally works. As such, it is important to understand the full scope of the task of shifting from the current arrangement to the one that would pertain under an Australian people's constitution. This will require an examination of the sort of democracy we have now, its weaknesses, and the risks it poses both to our sovereignty and our capacity for self-determination. That is the subject of the next chapter.